0: Compassionate God who loves us with an everlasting love. God who is faithful to us even when we are not faithful. God who loves us and forgives us of all of our sins. Please give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive. Help us to know you. Help us to know your love. Help us to dive in deep and make us free. Free to love you and free to love one another. Help me proclaim the good news of your word and help us hear the heart of Hosea's message to us today. We love you and we invite you to speak to us and transform us by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we begin our series on the Minor Prophets for the season of Lent. Now preparing to preach on any of the prophets can be a bit daunting for a few reasons. One, the prophets aren't very nice. So for example, Hosea proclaims, they forgot me, so I will become like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open the covering of of their heart. There I will devour them like a lion, as a wild animal would mangle them. I will destroy you, O Israel, who can help you? That's just really unpleasant. And I'm not sure how you clean that up, if you can even clean that up. I mean, it's not just not nice. It's violent. It's not just unkind. It's cruel. And it would be bad enough if it was just the prophet's voice. But the prophet is presuming to speak these violent words in God's own voice, as though these threats come straight from God. So what do we do with the violent God? Two, the prophets have to be at least PG-13 and in some places I'm thinking that they're more like an R. Uh, Hosea seems to be pretty preoccupied with sexual metaphors. As early as chapter two, Hosea seems to be speaking to Israel as a whole and he says, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts or I will strip her naked and expose her, as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and turn her into a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no pity, because they are children of whoredom." So obviously this is inappropriate. (laughs) For one thing, we have gendered language for God. God takes on this husband role, which can easily sound like the underlying assumption is that God is always gendered as male. So this is a good place for me to just pause for a moment and explain that throughout this sermon, I'll sometimes be using gendered language for God, precisely because this uh, metaphor of husband and wife is gendered, but not because God is gendered. But there's another problem with Hosea's sexual metaphors. The really hard thing about the prophets is that they expose a very real problem, which is that there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that just doesn't seem to belong in church. And it's not just that the prophets were crude, That would be one thing, but this is much worse than that. This is so much worse than just offending the sensibilities of nice church folk. Both Jeremiah and Hosea use sexual metaphors that aren't just inappropriate, but they're profoundly disturbing and violent. These metaphors are real and horrific, and they seem totally inexcusable. So what do we do with a God who uses speech that wounds? Three. The prophets seem to be full of one moralizing rant after another. Because you did this awful thing, that horrible thing is going to happen to you. Over and over again, metaphor after metaphor, tribe after tribe, judgment after judgment, punishment after punishment. You get the idea. And then, seemingly, out of the blue, there's this little ray of hope. There's a break in the clouds, and God gives us a little rainbow of positivity. And this is often an eschatological hope, which means that way, way in the future, after you have suffered horribly for all your many sins, eventually, someday, God will restore you. And these are the passages that beg us to preach to them because the rest of it is just so hard to stomach. The only problem with this is that the rays of sunshine only make sense in the context of the storm. So what do we do with scripture that seems to be mostly rain and very little sunshine? So these are just three reasons why I'd like to take a moment to thank Pastor Josh for the opportunity to (laughs) preach to you all today. No, I'm obviously joking. But in all seriousness, I really am very excited for this series, and I'm really, really grateful to be able to proclaim to you the good news of Hosea. Because Hosea's speech is violent, and it is disturbing, but it is also good news. It is also the gospel. And the really scandalous thing is that the good news is not just in the sunshiny restoration parts. The message of good news that shines forth from the raw pain and suffering of Yahweh and Yahweh's people is much like the awesome victory of God's love that shines forth from the gory horror of the cross. But picking up the story of Hosea at chapter one is kind of like turning on a really good drama halfway through the film. It's kind of like uh, turning on Schindler's List and only watching the part with a little girl in the red coat. There's so much in that one scene, but it only makes sense in context, so we have to rewind a little bit. And a great place to start is where we were last week. We talked about the Israelites in the desert. God had let them out of slavery in Egypt, and God was caring for the people in the wilderness. Six days a week, God provided manna, and the people gathered up enough for that day. But in preparation for the Sabbath, the people gathered double so that they could rest on the seventh day we learn that this was a practice of nonviolent resistance to the tyrannical pharaoh-like ways of the world which demand unceasing toil anxious striving and submission to the fear of scarcity remember that part i read to you earlier about how god was going to be like a lion to the people and god was going to lurk beside the way and fall upon them like a bear robbing her cubs uh, or robbed of her cubs Right before that violent imagery, Yahweh says this, Yet I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who fed you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. When I fed them, they were satisfied. They were satisfied, and their heart was proud. Therefore they forgot me, so I will become like a lion to them. So God nurtured little Israel like a dependent infant in the wilderness, But the child grew up and forgot God. In Hosea 11, God cries out to the people in lament. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love, I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Yahweh, Israel's God, led them out of slavery in Egypt. God led them through the wilderness, providing them with food and water and shelter and guidance and protection. Then God led them across the Jordan and into the Promised Land. But in that new season of plenty, of prosperity, of relative peace, the Israelites began to assimilate to the ways of Canaan. Assimilation to the ways of Canaan. Assimilation meant syncretism. It meant compromising here and there. I mean, it's not like they stopped worshipping Yahweh. They still kept that tradition. They taught their children the Ten Commandments and, they, and the story about Egypt and all of that. But they needed their crops to grow. And maybe slowly over time, Yahweh began to resemble Baal. The worship of Yahweh began to look a lot like the way that the Canaanites worshipped Baal. I mean, that's just how crops grow. They didn't mean to give up on Yahweh entirely. They just compromised a little bit. They just assimilated a little bit here and there to the ways of Canaan. They forgot the essence of their Sabbath. They forgot to resist the tyrannical, pharaoh like ways of the world, which demands unceasing toil, anxious striving, and submission to the fear of scarcity. But Yahweh calls this assimilation by a different name. Yahweh calls it infidelity. That disturbing passage earlier in which God threatens to strip Israel naked and expose her prostitution, well God goes on to explain, hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, for the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to devote themselves to whoredom. My people consult a piece of wood, and their divining rod gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have played the whore, forsaking their God. Yahweh sees Israel's compromise as betrayal. You see, when Yahweh and Israel were in the wilderness, and Yahweh was feeding and caring for Israel, they entered into a covenant with one another. And for Yahweh, the heart of the covenant was this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Yahweh urged the people to keep these words in your heart. And when you enter into the good land, take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I don't think the people thought they forgot. I think they just forgot that their covenant was about love. Maybe they thought it was about rules. You sacrifice this or that, on this or that mountain. But all the while God was saying, I desire your steadfast love and not these sacrifices. Maybe they thought it was about survival, and they were just doing what they thought they needed to do to appease the god of fertility. They didn't mean to make God into the image of Baal. They were just trying to live and eat and provide for their children. But whatever the reasons, the people violated the covenant. And for this, Yahweh confronted them. This is the major complaint against the people as articulated by Hosea. But the thing is, Yahweh had a bizarre reaction to the broken covenant. Yahweh is not confronting Israel like an objective judge at a sentencing hearing carrying out blind justice. Yahweh is very concerned about justice but in this God is more like a husband who came home from work yet again to find his beloved wife naked and in bed with another lover. He is ripped open. He is so hurt. He can only run through the house and out into the streets screaming in pain and agony. A part of him wants to go back into the house and tear her into pieces. Why? Why would she do this? How could she do this? In Hosea, we hear God's heart breaking, and the sound is like the ominous crash of thunder right before the flood. Israel can't hear God's cry, though. She has become deaf to God's voice. Although she thinks she knows God, her knowledge has become a kind of distant knowledge, kind of like the church in theology. God has kind of become an academic exercise. It's been so long since Israel has rested in God's arms. her head on Yahweh's chest and felt his beating heart. Yahweh is shouting as loud as possible over the vast distance that has grown between them, but she can't hear. She doesn't have ears to hear. The really crazy thing is that when Israel breaks the marriage vow, it is Yahweh whose heart is broken. It is Yahweh who laments in agony. In this season of Lent, What if we imagine that it is God who is weeping and covering himself with ashes? What if it is Yahweh who is grieving over the distance between him and his people? What if the violent and disturbing language in Hosea is referring to a wounded and vulnerable, but all-powerful God? God is God, so God does not have to be vulnerable to people. God chooses to be vulnerable to a stubborn, rebellious, and violent people. God knows that we, humanity has a whole, in each and every one of us. God knows that we will all stab him in the side like the soldier who stuck his spear into Jesus. God knows. God knows that when we vow to love God with all our hearts and we are fed and satisfied, we will get proud and we will forget. We will forget. God knew all the way back then when he led Israel out of slavery and through the wilderness, that they would assimilate to the ways of Canaan once they were in the Promised Land. And God knows that even though he led us out of slavery to sin and darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of light, we still love the darkness. God knows us, God knows we assimilate. God sees us, he knows us, and he loves us anyways. When we are unfaithful lovers, betrayers, and violators of our vows, God cries out to us from the distance, and says, how can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God responds to our many betrayals and our repeated injustices, not in wrath and not in rage, but in warmth and in tenderness. God responds to our infidelity by renewing his vows. The heart of Hosea is God's love sonnet for Israel, God's sweet song sung in the midst of sorrow, sung in the key of lament but in the melody of hope. Hear God's voice, therefore I will will now allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. From there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a trouble, a door of hope. There she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, or my master, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. I will make you lie down in safety, and I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness, and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy, I will take you from my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." God responds to our infidelity by renewing his vows. As followers of Jesus, we have entered into a new covenant and become the bride of Christ. During the season of Lent, we are focusing on moving toward freedom. The first move that we must make is to stop calling God by the names of false gods. All of them, all of our false gods are tyrants. They lord over us and imprison us. We must know God not as master and not as tyrant, but as our most intimate partner and friend. Sometimes we become like the ancient Israelites. We may have known God once, but we've drifted. We've compromised here and there. We've assimilated here and there to the ways of the world. The distance between us and God gradually grew over time, and now we can't remember the last time we felt God whisper in our hearts. No matter how long it's been, whether we encountered God's loving presence yesterday, last year, 10 years ago, or never, God is waiting and wanting. God is longing for each of us. God delights in each and every one of us. So no matter the distance, God has already overcome it. God is even now luring us into the wilderness, not to pounce on us like a lion, not to rip us apart, but to speak tenderly to us. The problem is that even though God knows us, we don't know God very well. We don't know the depths of God's love. How could we? We haven't even figured out what's in the depths of our oceans. How could we possibly know the depths of God's love? We can't get to the bottom of it just like we can't get to the bottom of the ocean. We can't understand it just like we can't understand the vastness of space. We're just finite creatures, suspended in a moment of time. We are just a whisper. A melody sung for a moment and carried away by the wind. And yet, at any moment, even though we can never discover all of God's work and God's ways will always be higher than our ways, God has set eternity in our hearts. And that's where we know God, heart to heart. Some of us might be a little bit worried right now, or maybe we're afraid, or maybe we're even downright angry because maybe we've never felt God heart to heart. Maybe we did not have an experience of God in our youth, and we don't have an Egypt story that we know how to tell. Some of us may have tried. We may have asked God to touch us. We may have tried to hear God's whisper, and yet God remained painfully silent. What if we feel like we're the only ones suffering? We're the only ones lamenting the distance between us and God. What do we do then? At the cross, Jesus took on all suffering, Hear me, because this is so important. Jesus took on all human suffering. God feels all of our pain. God grieves every one of our losses with us. God feels all of our anxieties, all of our worries, all of our fears. God has felt all of the alienation of all of our sins and all of our shame. And God's love is big enough to hold all of our pain. Even the pain of our alienation from God. Even the pain of our alienation from God. Even Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no longing that you have for God that God does not have for you, but just way bigger and much deeper. See, true freedom comes when we finally recognize God's smile, when we finally see God's eyes let up, when we finally return home from our wandering. We are free. When we finally stop striving for belonging. When we finally stop trying to cover up our shame. When we stop trying to brace against our deepest joys. When we can be open and vulnerable and truly ourselves, we can be free. And that freedom only comes in the outstretched arms of Christ. This freedom, like grace, is not cheap. This freedom is not simple. This freedom is a love, to, it's a freedom to love and be loved. It's a freedom to join with one another. It's a freedom that sows faithfulness and reaps justice. And it's a freedom I can't explain. I can't do justice to Hosea because there's, because there's no way that I can fully articulate the love of God. You have to just jump in. You have to dive in and surrender to it. We can't be free until we free fall into God's embrace. Reason won't let us do that. We're gonna need poetry. We're going to need singing. We might have to start dancing. We might have to paint. We might have to go outside and feel the warmth of the sun on our faces. We might start doing some weird things. But whatever the cost, we have to take the plunge into the ocean of God's love. That is, if we want to be free. It's dangerous, though. It really is dangerous. Because God is a God who confronts us with the truth, whether it's pretty or not. Even whether it hurts or not. But when God confronts us with hard truths, God is already and still holding us in love. And if we don't get free, we will stay immature as a people and as a church. God is calling us to go deeper, to go deeper in worship, deeper in love. And God is calling us to have some hard conversations with each other. We have important work to do with each other. And we won't be able to plow rough ground together if we don't get free. We won't be able to sow seeds of faithfulness, where over time we become bound to one another and we even die to ourselves. We won't be transformed into new creations, reaping a harvest of love and justice in our world. It all starts with going deeper in God's love and finding our belonging in his embrace. Hosea is not about a call to do more. Hosea isn't even really a call to do better or be better. It's a call to love. When we know God in love, we'll become a people free to love God and free to love one another. When we take the bread and the juice today, let's remember that we have entered into a new covenant with God. We are the bride of Christ even today. All our present needs and all of our future hopes are wrapped up in this new covenant. So I end with John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And it's kind of long, so just marinate in it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. Amen.